This episode contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 2nd, the Kids Are Philosophers edition. I'm Zach Rosen. I make a podcast called The Best Advice Show, and I live in Detroit with my family. My daughter Noah is four, and my son Ami is one. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's 10, Oliver, who's eight, and Teddy, who's five and a half. I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, but this week I am coming to you from Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. I'm Scott Hershevitz. I'm the author of Nasty British and Short Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. I teach law and philosophy at the University of Michigan. I've got two boys, Rex, who's now 12, and Hank, who's nine, and we live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about, well, the meaning of life, and maybe death too, and the meaning of meaning, and if the number six actually exists. Oh, and the nature of truth too, and why your kids, as they are now, are very good philosophers, probably better than you and I. And who better to reckon with these heady topics than an actual philosopher? And full disclosure, his brother happens to be Elizabeth's dad's former law partner, but that is not why we booked him. It was a total coincidence, we swear. A happy accident. I I'm, love I'm not it. sure what that Very makes us. Accident. My brother is your oh, no, I know. dad's former, so I think we're like third cousins twice removed or something. Worth, yeah, exactly. Yes. Post removed LLP. Yeah. <laughs> For Slate Plus, graduation season is in full swing, and while none of us have kids at graduation age, we thought we'd do some throwback triumphs and fails. Here's a sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. So I do think I got that degree, but... <laughs> but you only think you did, you're uh, yeah. not sure. But, oh, but so, so that was the fail, but, <laughs> I, but actually, I thought I learned like a super important life lesson at my high school graduation. If you want a weekly bonus segment from us and your other Slate favorites, consider signing up for Slate Plus. You'll also get to listen ad-free and get unlimited access to Slate's website. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus. Again, that's slate.com slash momanddadplus. All right, before we jump into this week's interview with Scott, we wanted to dive into our mailbag and share this letter. Dear Mom and Dad, a recent episode of the podcast really struck a chord with me. The letter writer was weighing the decision to quit her job and focus more on her family, and she was really struggling with the identity crisis that comes with leaving your work self behind, even if temporarily. I've been in the same struggle lately. I've been longing to quit my job that has shifted over the past seven years into something that really no longer fits my values and passions. My heart knows that I'm ready to refocus my priorities to be more present for my family, but my head had troubles grasping who I would be if I wasn't working outside the home. Something Elizabeth said about thinking about your life in phases, like the nine lives of a cat, really resonated with me. Very few things in life are permanent, and so one day after my 40th birthday, I turned in my resignation. I'm working on being okay with not knowing exactly what this new phase will hold or how long it will last, only knowing that this is what's right for us right now. So thank you for the reminder to listen to my heart when my head wants to overthink it. Sincerely, newly jobless in Texas. If you ever have any thoughts, suggestions, or advice of your own, we are all ears. Send us an email at slate.com or send us a voice memo and we may play it on the show. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, I'm going to talk to Scott about his book. All right, we are back and I'm excited to interview Scott Hershowitz. So Scott, you wrote this new book 
which is essentially a guide through so many of the big questions in life and like topics in philosophy. And it's through the lens of how these things have come up with you at home with your two boys. So tell me, when did you notice that your kids were philosophers? So it kind of went in stages, right? Which is to say, like really early on, maybe when my kids were like one or two, certainly by the time they were three, I noticed that they were doing things that were philosophically interesting, even if they weren't yet philosophers themselves. So Mm -hmm. some of the stories in the book are about our early attempts to to sort of punish Rex and correct bad behavior, uh, and which went went awry in like really amusing ways. They were completely unsuccessful. And I would take these things back to my philosophy of law classes and tell my students what had happened and ask them what I could have done differently and what our aim should be, say, in trying to punish our kids. Or they'd challenge my authority. Um, you know, by the time Rex was three, he was saying, you're not the boss of me. And I thought, well, yeah, I am. But uh, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to explain why. It's especially hard to explain to a three-year-old why. And so I take that to my class, too, and say, am I the boss of him? What is authority? When do people have it? Stage one was they were just philosophically interesting creatures. But then they really started to do philosophy on their own. So when Rex was four one night at dinner, he said, I wonder if I'm dreaming my entire life. And that's that's a question that goes back to antiquity. It's asked all around the world. Maybe the earliest formulation comes from a Taoist text uh, 2,000 years ago in China called the Zhuangzi. More famous uh, in more recent times, Descartes asked the same question. And uh, and we had really like you know really phenomenal conversations, Rex and I, mm-hmm. about whether he was dreaming his uh, his entire life. When he was four, we had conversations about God. And just like so definitely by the time they're three or four, they're asking the big questions themselves and struggling to answer them. So often we're teaching our kids something, like they're asking us a question and we're kind of explaining how or why. But when it comes to philosophy, they, they often have questions that, I mean, I definitely don't know the answers to. And they challenge our own understanding of, of the universe. And so what is it about this dynamic of, you know, not having answers. Why, why is that intoxicating to you as a human being? So I think talking to kids about philosophy can create a different kind of dynamic than you often have in your relationship with kids, whether you're a parent or a teacher. Often you're in the role of authority. Maybe you're in the role of an authority telling them what to do or telling them what to think. But if they're asking a question like, what are our lives for? Or does God exist? Or how big is the universe? Chances are you don't know the answer either. You might have views, right? Mm-hmm. Ideas, but uh, but you're not going to be sure about what the answers are. Um, and maybe you're really unsure. And so that creates the opportunity to have a kind of collaborative conversation with your kid, to treat your kid as equals. So the philosopher who is best known for um, work with kids is this guy, Gareth Matthews, who Um, would go into schools and talk to kids about philosophy and collected lots of stories from parents about the questions their kids would ask and the conversations that they would have. And he said that, um, that 
these conversations can be genuinely collaborative because you're each bringing something different to the table. You know more about the world and you're a more disciplined and rigorous thinker, but your kid mm-hmm. is more creative than you and they're, mm-hmm. they're um, more open-minded than you. They're going to challenge things that you're taking for granted. And so there's really an opportunity to work together. And I think that's super cool. You're right. It may be part of what it is to grow up is to stop doing philosophy and to start doing something more practical. And what do you say? It's like at eight or nine or something that, that our culture kind of says like, all right, enough with these big questions. Let's, let's kind of buckle down here. The the thing I say immediately after that, which is to say like, if that's true, then I never fully grown up, which will come as a surprise to to no (laughs) one who knows me. Um, I kind of got stuck with the questions that little kids have got. But, uh, but yeah, like the research suggests that between say ages three and eight, Kids are spontaneously interested in philosophy and they're raising philosophical questions on their own. They start to slow down around eight or nine. And it's actually really important. You can still prompt these philosophical conversations and kids will still take them up and they'll take them up with enthusiasm, but they don't raise them quite as often as is on their own. And I think there's a couple things going on there. One is that, uh, as you say, like their attention shifting elsewhere, like they're um, they're becoming more interested in like the social world, um, they develop like a sense of what other people think of them. They're negotiating like social status and social hierarchies as they get into middle school. And that takes a lot of their time and attention. It also gives them a kind of reluctance to seem silly or to be wrong. And so I think they're still probably having some of those big questions and big thoughts, but they're keeping a lot more of them to themselves. So I tell this story in the book of Rex when he was seven like had an argument for me. He thought the universe was infinite and he thought he could prove it to me. And it was like a super cool argument. He said, like, what if I take a spaceship all the way to the end of the universe and I'm standing right there at the end and then I kind of punch my hand. He's like, it'll have to go somewhere, right? And I was like, well, I don't know, maybe it just stops. And he's like, well, if it stops, there's something stopping it. So you're not really at the edge yet. And there's all kinds of problems with that argument, but that's an argument with a long history. It goes back uh, to ancient Greek philosophy, the pre-Socratic philosopher, pre-Socratic philosopher named Archytas was at least the first person in recorded history to make that argument. Lucretius made that argument. Isaac Newton was attracted to that argument. So it's super cool that the seven-year-old is just thinking on his own about the size of the universe and comes up with that. But also what I think is interesting is if he was 17 and had that thought, he wouldn't have shared it. He would have gone mm. to Google or just kept it to himself. You know, And I think that's because you don't want to be wrong when you're 17, or you don't want to seem silly for for having these uh, having these sorts of thoughts. That's one of the things I think is really super fun about littler kids. Are there parts of the world or subcultures where, you know, maybe a 17 year old wouldn't have that self consciousness, where philosophy is really um, encouraged beyond, you know, the beyond eight year olds? Yeah. So I my suspicion is that 17 year olds are probably always kind of anxious about what people think of them. But there are definitely mm-hmm. places in the world, and actually most places in the world other than the United States, that encourage philosophical thinking in kids. It's very commonly a part of high school education in uh, in lots of other places in the world. And there's even um, movements here in the United States, but sort of more advanced in other places to incorporate philosophy into um, early education. And, and I think that's really terrific because it can help kids hold on to their natural sense of curiosity. And if the adults in their lives signal to them, these questions are important and they're worth thinking about it and we value thinking deeply, then you can, um, you can sustain that better, I think. Yeah, what's a practical way uh, for parents to do that? 
So I think that the most practical way is to signal that you're not just interested in those questions, but you're interested in what your kids have to say about them. So, you know, if my kid asks a big question like, is God real? Um, I'm not just going to share my views. I'm going to say, what do you think? And then take what they think as a conversation stopper, not a conversation starter, right? So if they say, yeah, I think God is real, then I'll want to know like, oh, well, wait a minute. Like, have you have you noticed that at the beginning of the Bible, there are two creation stories and they don't seem to fit that well together? What do you think is going on there? Or if they say, I don't mm-hmm. think God is real, then I want to know, where do you think the world came from and how do you think it got started? So I think the simplest way um, to kind of nurture this curiosity is to show that you want to engage not just the issues, but them in a conversation about the issues. Speaking of engaging in a conversation about the issues, Scott, what is a floofer-doofer and why is it important in grasping our understanding of revenge more fully? Yeah, so I'm still not sure what a floofer-doofer is, but uh, when when Hank was three, he and I were hanging out at home one day, he didn't have school, and we were just like snuggling in bed, and he says to me, yesterday, Caden, a kid in his class, Caden called me a floofer-doofer, and then Kelly, the teacher, came to talk to me. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, why'd she come to talk to you? And he really, like, the story came out in bits and pieces, and it was never quite clear what happened, but it was, what was clear was, Caden called him a floofer-doofer. He took that as an insult, and I think probably, properly so. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what a floofer-doofer is, but it's probably not good to be called a floofer-doofer. But then Hank responded in some way, uh, and I could never get him to tell me what he did. Uh, but that's why the teacher came to talk to him, to talk about however he uh, took revenge. And, and I figured this out because at some point I said to him, Hank, did you think it was okay to do something mean to Caden because he said something mean to you? And he looked at me like I was stupid and he said, yeah, right? Like he called me a floofer-doofer as if sort of <laughs> obviously upon being right. called a floofer-doofer, one's honor has been challenged and you must okay. uh, you must seek revenge. So in, in the book, in Nasty Bruce and Short, this is a kind of a springboard, right? What I want to do, it actually connects up with my academic interests. I think about how we respond to wrongdoing. What I what we do in the, what I do in the book is try to think like, what is it that makes it just seem so obvious to three-year-old Hank that if somebody said something insulting to you, that the thing to do is take revenge. And, and then once you get a sense of what his interest is in striking back, like what are the other ways you can achieve whatever those interests are without hitting Caden or calling him a floofer-doofer or whatever? It couldn't have been that serious. The, the school didn't send home an incident report. So I don't think Hank was physically violent. But, uh, but what are the mm-hmm. substitutes for taking revenge is a kind of live question in that chapter and in, and in, and in life in general, I think. When you think back on all of the conversations and um, you know debates you've had with your kids over the years, is there something in particular that's come up that's just been like one of the most puzzling or just like the biggest head scratcher for you? So I'll tell you um, uh, about a puzzle that I think like my kid helped me make progress on by saying something really profound. So so when Rex was four, um, one night at dinner, he asked. Uh, is God real? And we'd, we'd been sending him to the Jewish Community Center uh, for preschool, so he'd been learning a lot about God and the stories that uh, the Jews tell about God. And so he asked this question a lot, and so I just reflected it back to him. I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think that for real, God is pretend, and for pretend, God is real. Mm. And I was just kind of like stunned by that. It was like, sounded like such a sophisticated thought, and I was like, 
what do you mean? Tell me more about that. And he said, God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And I, I just thought about that for, for days, weeks after he said it, because I've always had this sort of puzzle about myself, which is I don't think of myself as a religious believer in the sense that I think the stories in the Bible are true and happen just as they're told. And I don't re- really believe in God as part of like what's in the world. But nevertheless, I participate in lots of religious practices. I celebrate holidays. I fast on Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. I take my kids to synagogue. And so I've always mm-hmm. been puzzled, like, why are these things important to me if I don't actually have these beliefs? And I and Rex helped me understand it, right? Um, which is to say, I think he's right that for real God is pretend, but for pretend God is real. But pretending, like as you see from your kids all the time, can make the world like a more rich and meaningful place. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like by pretending when we go to synagogue, by pretending when we participate in these holidays, we create these traditions in our lives that um, that we value as occasions to bring people together and to think about like the things to be that we're grateful for, that we're thankful for. So that was a moment in which kind of upended my view of an important part of my life and helped me make sense of things. I just... I, I never, I, I was going to say rarely, but I was going to say I never speak to professional philosophers other than today. So it's a real treat. I wondered what kind of advice do you have for for those of us who aren't reading much philosophy, but who are, um, you know, just hungry for making meaning in our lives? What can we take from your discipline? Well, so if you're, um, if you've got kids around, uh, and I suspect most of your listeners do have kids around, uh, I think that you can piggyback off their efforts to think big questions and to try to make sense of the world. And so really, like my, my ambition for the book is partly to get adults to see kids as the serious thinkers they are and to nurture them and support them, but also really just as much, maybe even more. I want to help adults recapture some of the wonder that kids have. So, um, you know, when your kid asks a really hard question um, or a really weird question, lean into it and try and figure out what they're thinking. One of the things I've loved is, as I was working on this book, is I meet a lot of parents who then share questions their kids would ask. So I met this one mother whose daughter, every night at bedtime, she was four years old, was asking, why do the days keep coming? Mm. And, uh, you know, and her mother tried like the basic science of like, oh, the earth is rotating, but it wasn't like a science question that was interesting to her. And her mother was like struggling to figure out just what is driving this. Is it anxiety? Like I'm having trouble, like taking what the world is throwing at me. Is it uncertainty Mm -hmm. that like the things in the future are going to be the same as they are now? And so like, I think all kids are just going to ask these questions that, that come out of left field a little bit. And to take those as kinds of gifts to try and figure out what they're up to and then go on this philosophical adventure with them. I love it. Scott Hershvitz is the author of Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. It's delightful, Scott, and like very, it's very readable. This is not an academic book. This is just a really fun, uh, deeply wise and funny read. So congrats on the release and uh, listeners, you should check it out. Thanks so much. This was a blast. Okay, it's finally time for some recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you have for us? 
Okay, I am very into the comeback of the fanny pack now called hip pack, especially for those of us who they don't put pockets in your clothes and Mm -hmm. then you're asked to carry all of your children's stuff. So there's a lot of great ones out there, but I really am in love with, it's the Sipsy Wilder. They're a small company hip pack because you can attach a water bottle holder and you guys, when I am hiking, like on these short hikes or when I've been traveling with the kids, I can hold everything everything I need in this little hip pack, including a water bottle. It has been a game changer for me. I um, have tried backpacks and shoulder packs, but then if I have to pick up the kids, it's like they slip around or if I, you know, I'm constantly like turning the bag around. This has just been such a a wonderful (laughs) little collection. Um, I'm loving it with the kids. What about you, Scott? So I'm going to recommend a website. The Prindle Institute for Ethics has a website called Teaching Children Philosophy. And what they have there is like modules like uh, for, for picture books. A lot of the picture books you probably own, books like Nuffle Bunny or Frederick. And for each book that they've got, they've got a kind of a primer for a parent on what philosophy questions that book raises. And then also a list of questions you can ask children as you read or after you read oh, cool. the book. And uh, and even as a professional philosopher, I used this website all the time when my kids were little and we were reading picture books. You know, some nights you just want to get through the story and get them to bed. But if you can have a little more relaxed bedtime, so many of these books raise really deep, interesting questions that you're just kind of passing by and missing the opportunity to have a conversation about. And so I'd glance at the Teaching Children Philosophy website very briefly before reading that night's story and pick one or two questions that I might ask along the way. I'm going to piggyback on the getting kids to sleep piece. Noah has stayed up late for the last couple of years and, and we've just been having a hard time figuring out like what will actually calm her. Uh, for a while, she was like listening to her favorite TV show and then she was listening to music and that that wasn't serving us very well. And just this week, I finally got her to listen to a GD podcast for the first time in her life. This is a big victory <laughs> for her father, who is a podcaster. Um, but it also has just uh, <laughs> just put her right to sleep. So Was uh, she listening to you? Yeah. She <laughs> listened one. to your podcast? Yeah, she's listening to my shows and snoring away. She uh, she doesn't... Well, she, she's listened to my show a little bit, but no, she's not very interested in me. So I put on Julie's Library. This is uh, yes. Ju- Julie Andrews. Ugh podcast uh with her daughter from american public media she just reads a a children's book and i'm telling you i put it on and like noah is not coming into our room as much she's listening or she's just falling right asleep and uh it has served us very well it's like a really just nice soothing way to spend the last few minutes of your day i mean who doesn't want julie andrews to lure you off to sleep i i I mean mary poppins yeah shout out to american public media they do a lot of great kids kids shows all right well that's it for our show we'll be back in your feeds on monday subscribe to the show so you don't miss it this episode of mom and dad are fighting is produced by rosemary belson and jasmine ellis for scott hershevitz and elizabeth newcamp i'm zach rosen thanks for listening all right slate plus listeners let's keep it going It's that time of the year where if you get too close to a university or high school, chances are you'll hear pomp and circumstance floating through the air. We thought it would be fun to do a round of graduation-themed triumphs and fails or just stories. Scott, do you want to go first? 
So I think I've got a fail and then a, and then like a larger lesson about fails averted. So so my fail was from my uh, my college graduation. I actually graduate. I, I had enough credit hours I had, uh, accrued. I was getting a like a bachelor's and a master's degree in, in this on the same day. And I, we went to the gra- first graduation and that went off fine. And then there was like lunch. And then we went to the second graduation and there's a much smaller graduation for the master's degree. So they were actually saying people's names and I was in line and they said the name of the person in front of me. And then they said the name of the person behind me and they didn't, and they didn't say my name. And <laughs> my dad had come up and he was, um, right there with his camera and I kind of looked at him and he kind of looked at me and I think he had a moment where he wondered like did he really get this degree am I putting him on I just decided (laughs) to walk across the stage anyway and so he got pictures but my name was never said they did mail me a diploma so I do think I got that degree but (laughs) but you only think you did you're not sure so so that was the fail but I but actually I thought I learned like a super important life lesson at my high school graduation from my principal Ted Newman, who gave us like a stern talking to during the rehearsal for graduation. He said, there are some events in life that on the surface look like they're about you and they're really about other people. And graduation is one of Mm -hmm. them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like, yes, we're marking the fact that you have finished school and that's an achievement, but really we're giving your family and friends a chance to celebrate you and also a chance to feel good about their accomplishment in getting you here and do not mess that up for them. And I feel like that is a lesson I try to pass on to my kids, which is, um, you know, not everything in life that looks like it's about you is about you. And, uh, and to remember, you know, you don't get to make all the decisions about your bar mitzvah, for instance, coming up soon because, that's partly about your grandparents and our extended family and providing everyone a chance to gather together. So, uh, so that, and, and, and I think he probably avoided many graduation fails by warning people against the, the misbehavior. Yeah. I feel like you've really put a damper on my rant about how much I hate graduations. Oh. Go for it. Well, I think there are too many graduations now. <laughs> Yes, there's two. Everybody has gra- I've been to so many graduations. An upside of the pandemic is just how much of this stuff moved online. So we went to yeah. we yes. went to Atlanta for my nephew's graduation, but we weren't allowed to go to the ceremony because they capped the numbers for COVID. So we watched the live stream in his house, and it was a million times better. Yes, this is all I want, to be in a nice house watching something on a TV as a shared experience. Yeah, so I can pay attention (laughs) right before and right after. Yes. Yeah, that's that's it. (laughs) Jeff now is in an academic, you know, position. It's also like a full day of his time where he's going to sit up on a stage and, and, you know, be there as part of the like ambiance um, to watching these students graduate. And and I'm not saying I know it's like a huge deal and uh, it, it just feels like we've made them to be these things that I'm not sure are meeting anybody's. Needs. I am very strategic about where so- I get, where I stand in the line <laughs> for, for placement on stage. Like I, I better be in the back row. Um, where, where nobody, where nobody can see me if I'm going to survive. Uh, I love meeting families afterwards, celebrating with my students. Yes, yes. And I kind of wish we could just do it more as an interactive party. But the hours, the hours spent on stage as a prop, I could definitely mm. do without. Scott's insight about graduations not being for the students just just struck me um, pretty hard because I think back to my high school graduation, 
And there was just this like deep sense of melancholia that I, that I remember feeling that day. And like, I wasn't, I just like, wasn't joyful. Um, I was never a high achiever and like all of my friends were. So I think I, f I felt like some inferiority there, but I was also just like, I just wasn't happy in a way that I, that it felt like I was supposed to be. And it's always like, it's always, uh, that the memory of that stuck with me. Like, why weren't you happy when you graduated high school? Um, and you know, I was, I was in a kind of, you know, my, my parents had got divorced a year, you know, a couple years before. So I was kind of in that malaise, but it was like an alienating day. I felt like everyone was smiling and happy. Like, aren't you so happy? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I am. Um, and then I ended up, my, my family came to my college graduation weekend, but um, I told them that I had no interest in like going to the main ceremony and they were like, cool. So we just like totally skipped it and had a great day. Um, you know, like we went out for a meal, took a great walk. And I felt like that was such a great, um, a great use of our time rather than sitting, you know, in a stadium yes. for, for four hours. So that's another thing. Just like, if you feel like you don't want to do the thing, maybe just like opt out, give yourself a break. But if you are celebrating a graduation, whether it's your own or a family of friends, congratulations. This is um, a big deal for so many people. Uh, and we want to hear your funny, cringy, sentimental graduation stories. Send them in to us at momandad at slate.com. And be sure to join us Monday for another regular episode and Thursday for another bonus segment. Later. <laughs>